So for the next six or seven weeks, if you have your Bible, you can open it to 1 Thessalonians, and uh, we're going to spend some time in there. And I would encourage you, uh, as we do always when we work through a letter or book in the Bible, to, to read through it. And uh, for those of you that like like a 20 to 30 minute reading session, this is perfect. You can actually read two letters in that time. And uh, 1 Thessalonians, about five chapters, and you can probably knock that out. And 2 Thessalonians is three chapters. You can knock both of those out easily in a half hour because there are just a few pages. And uh, I encourage you to do that as you do. I don't know if you do this in your Bible. Underline, highlight, put stuff in there that God is like, wow, God is speaking to me through this, or things that, that God may be... Uh, teaching you through it, I encourage you to write that down or to highlight and to write in your Bible. One of the things you're going to notice in this letter as we study it is you will be encouraged. And uh, so often we like to think of encouragement is, uh, hey, way to go, you know, or great job. And there are moments where uh, we get, you know, that positive encouragement back from someone. We all, we all need that. Uh, but I want to forewarn you that throughout this letter as we, as we continue in it, um, you will notice that it's not all, hey, way to go, great job. There's also another type of encouragement, uh, the type of encouragement where you need to change some things, right? You need to reorient. Uh, you need to make things new in a specific area. My dad and my mom, uh, believe it or not, had to encourage me a lot to stop doing things when I was growing up with bad behavior. Uh, and they also, they did some positive encouraging as well. But we need that. We need not only positive encouragement, but sometimes we need Put in our place encouragement. In the Bible, the Bible will do both. Uh, to whatever season you're in, different circumstances, it will speak to you in those different ways. But we need both because they both bring life to us. They grow us. They make us more like Jesus. So let me give you a little background of Thessalonica. How many of you look at the maps in the back of your Bible like once a decade? Anybody do that in the 2010? To, okay. Well, pop it up so you can do it for this decade. The top left, Thessalonica. Uh, it's situated like in northern Greece, all right? And it's still there. It's just spelled a little bit different with a K. You can go visit it. A lot of artifacts there. And then Paul, this is his second missionary journey. The bottom right is where he took off from. He was down near Jerusalem in a town called Caesarea, and that's where he took off from to head to Thessalonica. So he shows up onto the scene at Thessalonica. And to imagine Paul, he, he had three missionary journeys, that he traveled some 10,000 miles. And he didn't have a sweet car. He didn't have a nice airplane to get there. It was roughing it for 10,000 miles. Whatever, you know, Delta, Sky Mile thing, he would have received. He, Paul would have been the guy to get it, right? But he shows up in Thessalonica. And I want you to picture when Natalie and I returned from Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic, a month ago. If we would have came back and gave you a report like this, if this is what happened when we were there. Hey, we preached the gospel. Matt and I started a riot with the Nutters. A church started, a church started, and then we had to skip town because it was getting ugly. That's exactly what happened to Paul. If he would have written it out, his, his traveling plans, I don't think he would have written it out the way that we're going to read here in a moment. But it's exactly what happened. He went in and he preached the gospel. He literally was a part of starting a riot. And uh, a church was started, a strong church, the Thessalonica church. And he had to skip town at night and get out of Dodge. So I want to read to you, I want to actually go to Acts 17 first, uh, because I always like to read the backstory to the, to the letter that we're about to read. And Acts 17 tells the backstory, and it's important for us to read it before we jump in. This is the story of, of Paul doing these four things. It says, when Paul and his companions had passed through these two towns that start with A, you can figure that out later, they came to Thessalonica. 
where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. I'm sure there was was some heated exchanges between uh, Paul and some of the religious leaders. I don't know. Uh, It goes on, and it says, This Jesus that I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a few, uh, quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace. They formed a mob, and they started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house. Jason was a, you didn't think Jason was in the Bible. Jason's in the Bible, and he, he was an early convert, and they were staying at his house. So they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials. It just said earlier, it's mob mentality, right? I mean, we, can, we know what this looks like. It's kind of a little bit in our culture and in our world now that uh, when you want to get a group of people to agree with you or to let everybody else know they're wrong, create a mob and, and get loud. So they're shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. Shame on you, Jason. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, uh, and then they made Jason and the others post bond, pay a little money, and let them go. As soon as it was night, Uh, Paul and Silas knew it was not safe for them to stay any longer. The believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So what they do? They preach the gospel. They started a little riot, got a little ruffled some feathers in town, and uh, started a church, which was a strong church. And then and then they skipped, they skipped town. We know that Paul was not there very long. Um, Many would say three weeks, because it says right here in this passage that he spent three Sabbaths there. Um, some would say upwards of three months, but either way you look at it, he was there for a very short amount of time. When you travel somewhere and you're there for a very short amount of time, uh, usually not a lot happens, and you don't really build a lot of inroads with a ton of people. But one of the things that we learn throughout this, and we're going to learn in First Thessalonians with this church being started, even though they weren't there for a long time, people believed. People's lives were changed. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it penetrated people's hearts. And their lives were changed forever. And many would say this was one of Paul's first planted churches. uh, But it for sure is a church that he pointed back to often as how to create a a movement like this. Not in the way that he did it. Don't start a riot and do all that. But this strength of this church, it was an enduring church. It was one that persevered through great persecution. You just heard in Acts 17, there was many that believed, but there was a whole other group of people that, that, that thought, man, this is crazy. Get them out of town, right? So imagine the pressure, the tension that these early Christians are living under, but they kept the faith. As we jump into 1 Thessalonians 1, I want to point this out so you can see it in the first few verses. Paul encourages them. He commends them. He says, hi, I'm Paul. Greetings. And he does all the early stuff. But then He says, hey, your work, I want to commend you on your work and your ministry. You are doing it with the right motivations. Motivations are a big deal. Our motive behind why we do something or why we don't do something is a really big deal. And if we want to have the right motives, uh, the Bible paints a pretty clear picture that we need to have the heart of Jesus. So here's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 3. 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, and we continually mention you uh, uh, in our prayers. So they thank God for this church. They pray for this church. And then he says, we remember you in our prayers uh, before our God and Father, your work produced by faith. He says, your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you catch the few motivations that Paul says, man, you all are spot on when it comes to the things that are, that are, that are charging you up for ministry? What's he say in verse 3? He says, your work, what's their motivation for carrying out the work of ministry? It's their faith in Jesus Christ. This church is filled with faith. It's, it's, it's their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, your labor. We all labor, right? We all work. We all do things. But their labor, what was it motivated by? It was motivated by and prompted by love, Paul says. That's a pretty good motivating factor for our lives. And then the last one, he says, you are an enduring church. And the thing that, that, that helped them be an enduring church is their hope that they had in Jesus. The hope that they had in heaven. I was reading something this week that in the first and second Thessalonians, one out of every ten words either speaks to Jesus returning or to the end times. That their hope was in, was in the things to come. That Jesus was coming back for the church. So they had faith. And they had hope. And they had love. Where else do we see that in Scripture? Paul talks about it. 1 Corinthians 13. Remember that? Uh, I preach. I use that a lot when I, when I carry out a wedding. 1 Corinthians 13, he begins to talk about love, all these things that love does, and, and maybe even does not do. And then at the end, in, in verse 13, he says, and now these three remain, remember this? Faith, hope, and love. And then he caps it and he says, the greatest of these is love. He doesn't say the greatest of these is love because you you're exempt to the other two. You don't need to do those. No, these should all be a part of our Christian life. But love conquers all. These are motivating factors for us as well. But the church in Thessalonica, they got it. They were motivated to carry out their work because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask it a different way. Is it possible to work, to labor, and to endure with the wrong motivation? You bet it is, right? There's a lot of people today that are laboring, that are working, that are enduring some of the craziest things for the complete wrong reason. And for the complete long renovation. So the answer is yes. So in the Christian journey, our motivations, the motive of why we're doing things is a big, big deal. You probably have people in your workspace, in your family. Maybe you find yourself in this place where they are working tirelessly for something. They are laboring vigorously to, 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 to make something happen with their lives. That they're enduring through some of the craziest of circumstances. And yet, it's all for the wrong motivation. And Paul is encouraging this church, man, you all have figured it out. There are good reasons to work hard, to labor hard, to endure, to persevere. And it has to come out of you living with the right motives, with the right motivation. If we are doing it with the wrong motivation, uh, most likely you're doing it for, for the wrong purposes. Let me ask you a question. Is this, these, these are questions we can pause and ask ourselves when we think about our motivations. What's the real reason I'm doing this? You ever before you jumped into something, what is the real reason that I'm doing this? What is the real reason I'm about to say this? 
whether you're in a meeting or with a group of people. What is the real reason? I'm typing this thing out. Oh, before I hit enter and I post this, what is the real reason that I'm putting this online and letting people know my mind? What is the real reason for letting my opinion be known right now in this, in this moment? Our motivations are a big deal. And if we're honest, a lot of times our motivation is more important than the thing we're actually even doing. Because if we're doing it with the right motives, to honor God, to follow Jesus in our walk with Him, I believe good will come from it. But if it's with the wrong motives, uh, I believe it's going to turn out ugly. I have to remind myself often, um, this is going to be 16 years in ministry now, and, and I have to remind myself why I got in ministry in the first place when I didn't have a clue what I was doing. I still not a whole lot of what I'm doing, but a long time ago I really didn't. And jumped into ministry just because I love Jesus and love the church and really felt this is what God was calling me to do. You know how easy it is whenever you get, a, get up front every, every week and stand on a platform and speak to people to make ministry about yourself? If I allow the wrong motives to take over? Uh, to allow ministry to be more concerned with me than, than the people around me? Uh, to walk through ministry and be more concerned about what other people say about me than what Jesus Christ says about me? You know how easy it is as, as, as a pastor to listen to everybody's opinions and preferences and, and want to lean into those instead of what God has called us to with the vision and mission that He's called this church to be a part of and carry out in this community? Our motivations are a big deal. And it's a great point today to, to stop, even before it's a great message, before we jump into communion, to pause and to think about what are the motivations that are driving my life and me right now? Are they motivations that are God-honoring? Because if you're doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons, you missed it. And if you're doing all the right things on the outside for all the wrong reasons, today would be the day to come before our holy God and repent of that. And to do it often. That's why we spent time doing that last week. 1 Thessalonians 1.3, it says, We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Who's He speaking to? The church, the church family, right? The church in Thessalonica. But let me think and tailor this to 2020, Centerville Community Church, and tailor it to us today to think about our work being produced by faith. When we as a church carry out the work of ministry by faith, God can bless that, God can honor that, and God can be at work in the midst of that. Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. For us to walk through life being faith-filled, right? Uh, just because we can't see behind what that, that, that door is, but God's calling us to walk through it. No, we're faith-filled in that moment, and we step through the door, even though it's scary and risky and we don't even want to, right? But if God's called us to do it, we do it. So here's some things I want us to think about, that if I'm here for the wrong reasons, if any staff member is here for the wrong reasons, if our governing board ever finds themselves here for the wrong reasons, or even any volunteer that's serving on any given weekend is, is doing it all for the wrong reasons, uh, we're sunk. And we'll find ourselves being stale and irrelevant to the people around us. When we do what we do because of our faith in Jesus Christ, look out. Because God will honor it. And God will bless it. I believe we serve a God that, that probably, I don't know how this all works out, we can ask Him when we get to heaven that probably struggles blessing things when they're done with the lack of faith. I read in, again in 11, uh, verse, Hebrews 11, verse 6, it's a few verses later, and without faith it's impossible 
to please God. When we're doing it on our own power, with our own strength, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. What would be the opposite of that? With faith, it is possible to please, to please God. What would it look like in 2020 for this church to be known, to be our banner song, as we just sang earlier, of being a faith-filled, risk-taking church, a God-honoring church? There was areas in Scripture where uh, Jesus got excited. He would maybe come out of his chair, you know, even clap during worship. I don't know, some of you are you're getting there. But there was a story in Matthew 8, and uh, he was, he was in, in, in dialogue with a Roman centurion. You may know that story. And so this Roman centurion, Jesus comes to town, and he runs to the Roman centurion, or the centurion, Roman centurion runs to him, and he says, my servant is sick, he's lying in bed, he's paralyzed, can you come and help? Which there's a whole lot of stuff that goes around that, that he would even ask that question is a big deal. And here's the exchange in Matthew 8. It says, the, the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now he's going to talk about how he knows what power looks like. For I myself am a man under authority. With soldiers under me, I tell this one go, and he goes, and I tell that one come, and he comes. And I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, it says he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. When we carry out the work of ministry, acting in great faith, God can bless it. Here's what it tells me. That every single week when people walk in this door, whether they've been here since the church started or this is their very first time here, is they walk through this door and we're carrying out the work of ministry, faith-filled, believing that God's going to do a work, that God can show up in their life in that moment, think about this, and change the eternal trajectory of their life when they come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That is what living out and carrying out the work of ministry in faith looks like. They can show up to this place and they can find, they can find Jesus. And the church that carries out their faith in this way, I believe, is the church that's going to experience the blessing, the blessing of God. The fact that He would use imperfect people Filled with faith. we got all of our flaws, all of our junk. Anson prayed a little bit about it earlier. And uh, that he would choose to use us is incredible. It's because of our faith and our trust in him. Next line, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 3, it says, We remember you before our God, Father uh, and Father, your work produced by faith and your labor prompted by love. That when you work, when you labor out of love, it changes, it changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you have been to a restaurant or you went to a retail store over the Christmas season, and you ran into somebody or a worker, and they were serving you not out of love, but out of duty. Can you sniff that out in about two seconds, right? When they're just so ticked, they even have to help you? And uh, yeah, we know what that looks like. Love is the greatest factor that we can ever have relationally with one another. And yet, so many times, we will serve one another out of, out of duty. But Paul commends this church, they're not serving out of duty because they have to. They're not standing at the door greeting with a frown, right? They're doing it because they just, they, they're doing it out of love. Because Jesus first showed them, first showed them love. Think of the restaurants. Think of the stores. Think of the retail places you go where you experience that. I can think of one that uh, they don't serve much beef. A little red in their logo. A lot of them say my pleasure every time you say like anything, even if they say my pleasure. Yeah, 99.9% of the time, it's a really good experience. Why? 
because they've taught their employees. I've read some of their employee training online. They've taught their employees to love the people that walk through those doors. They're not serving you a Coke out of duty. How much more? How much more should the church be doing this? Here's my biggest, here's my prayer. That whether you've been at this church for 40 years or four minutes, it doesn't matter that when you walk through these doors that no one would ever be served, looked at, or greeted out of duty. But it would be done so out of, out of love. If you're a greeter, if you're an usher, if you do anything, what would it look like for you to show up to this place and serve not out of duty, oh man, I'm on the list, why'd they sign me up today, right? But actually we serve out of, imagine how that changed your workplace, your home, your team, whatever you're a part of, that if you were to serve people out of love rather, rather than duty. If we want to change this community, uh, love is the greatest factor. We need to serve people out of love rather than duty. He ends it in verse 3 in this section. He says, we remember you before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, not duty, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I said earlier that this church was an enduring church, the Thessalonica church. This church, Centerville Community Church, is an enduring church, a church that's persevered, much like the church in Thessalonica. That persecution came their way in Thessalonica. They experienced rough waters, and yet they, they had their hope. Their eyes were fixed on something greater than their circumstances. Their hope was in Jesus Christ. That's a great reminder to all of us that even if you're walking through the darkest of valleys, keep your hope fixed on Jesus Christ. This church modeled this to the world and to Paul, and Paul commended them. He commended them for it. We're about 16 days away um, from a federal holiday. Anybody know what it is? Oh, great. Martin Luther King Day is coming up soon in, in January. I didn't know the days. I had to look it up this week. But it's coming up in 16 days. And uh, I want to read this quote that he shared kind of in this same theme. It says, The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And I think the same could be said of the church. The ultimate, ultimate measure of a church is not where they stand in the moments of convenience and, and where things are easy and comfortable. And I would argue we in the States, we have it pretty easy and pretty comfortable when it comes to living out our Christian life, right? I mean, we could probably all agree with that. But the ultimate measure of a church when they experience rough waters, persecution, tough seasons, that they endure, that they stand strong in it and through it. And you want to know where the Thessalonican church stood? You want to know where we stand? They stood in the area of faith, in the area of hope, and in the area of love. They didn't have the full, the full Bible yet. We do. And we also stand on the Word, the Word of God. An enduring, an enduring church. And I want us to catch that today. Because if we can be a faith-filled church, a church that loves well, and a church that endures well, that's the thing that will saddle us up to walk through stormy seasons. So the big question is this. Are you doing things with the right motives? Uh, what is the motivating factor in your life right now? And the second piece to this, beginning of this chapter 1, is he says, well, who are you imitating? Who are you modeling? Your, you know how we find, have a lot of people, we watch their lives, and we're like, I want to be more like that. They're... They, they, I need to be someone like them. Uh, and yet, we imitate often the wrong things. 
and they usually always fall short. But 1 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7 says, You became imitators of us, who's us, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The church was young in their faith, and yet they were, they were showing the people around them Jesus, because one, it was modeled to them what a walk with Jesus actually, actually looked like. It's really the discipleship process. Paul, Timothy, Silas began to teach them. They were, they were watching them, and then they began to imitate, model their walk after these three and the Lord, it says in the Bible. And in verse 7, listen to what happened because of that. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So the question for us, if we want to be serious about handing this church off to the next generation, there's going to be a day when none of us are even here. The question is this, are we following the right models? Are we imitating the right person, Jesus Christ? And maybe even a bigger question, is your life worth imitating? Would you want your children and grandchildren to imitate your spiritual journey and your spiritual habits and your spiritual disciplines and your spiritual, your spiritual life? Paul, Timothy, and Silas were living in such a way that they rubbed off on the Thessalonian church and they began to literally spread the gospel because, because of it. And what it tells me is, uh, is that our lives aren't as much about us as we, as we think. Uh, so often we think the world may revolve around, around us, but I believe that our, we were put on this planet to be vessels, to be ambassadors for the greatest story ever told. And he not only wants to use us to share that story, but he wants us to invest, to mentor, to love other people into the story. So the question is, who are you mentoring? Who are you loving? Who are you pointing towards Jesus? As I mentioned earlier in First and Second Thessalonians, there's a lot about the end times, a lot about Jesus returning for his church. And uh, so really everything that Paul says uh, is factored into this idea that Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be a glorious reunion. So there's not a better really passage for today to, to, to go into communion with than verse 9 and verse 10. Uh, Paul is not only cheering them on and thanking them and commending them, but he shares a few areas for what their motivations really are. And I hope that it could be said of us when 2020 comes to an end, we could say, well, that, that was this church, Centerville Community Church's uh, motivation as they live this life, this Christian journey this year. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, it says, you turn to God. Talk about knowing the ultimate destination, right? This group of people turned their lives to God. And it says, from idols to serve the living and true God. What happens when you turn to God and you also turn from idols to serve the living and true God? What happens in your life? You begin to experience freedom, right? You begin to experience wholeness. When you turn away from sin, when you turn away from the things that so easily entangle us. They knew where they were going. So they turned from idols. They're going in the right direction, and it's all because of this. Whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. What does Jesus do? He rescued you and he rescued me from the coming wrath. How did he do it? Oh, God sent his son Jesus into the world. And it was through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And we put our trust in that. We say, God, I believe. We confess with our heart and with our lips that he is Lord. 
We can be saved, as the Thessalonican church understood, from the coming, from the coming wrath. This church had the right mindset. I think when the new year comes around, it's about having the right mindset going into it. It's about knowing where, where you're going, right? It's about having a destination, hoping in the right places. There's always hope with a new year. Living out the expectations of the new year. But doing so with the motivation that's holding tight to the things of Jesus Christ. So I want to close with these few questions to just prompt you to think as we head into communion. You may be in here today and say, idols, I don't have a whole lot of those going on in my life. I see other people with them. Maybe you don't, all right? But let me ask you this question. Do you have something in your life that you need to turn from? It's not helping your spiritual journey. You're not growing closer to Christ because of it. It's not enhancing anything when it comes to your walk with Jesus. Something that you can turn from. Are you headed in the wrong direction? This church knew the direction they were heading. Do you need to make a pivot? Do you need to pause? Do you need to turn around? Whatever it is, what what is God calling you? Are you heading in the wrong direction? Is it time? Is it time to turn? Uh, The next one is the church was looking forward to Jesus. So what are you focusing your, your life on? Maybe the most important question you can answer before you leave this place is this. Uh, Do you know that you know that you are saved from the wrath that's that's soon to come? I don't know when the last day is coming. I don't know when Jesus is returning. It always feels like it's getting pretty close, doesn't it? Um, Are you ready? Could it be said of you that you have the right motivation right now? You probably wrote a list of goals for 2020. What's the motivation behind those goals.